0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last part of a three-part miniseries detailing the case of a serial killer, who terrorized Northern California in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Because the murders occurred on hiking trails in state parks, national forests, and coastal areas, he became known as the Trailside Killer. This week, I'll continue the story where I left off in episode 205. We learned last time that over a period of just over one year in 1979 to 1980, three women were found murdered on Mount Tamalpais, a popular hiking spot located in Marin County, California investigators began to suspect that the murders may have been committed by the same individual and they were dealing with the serial killer. As more resources were allotted to patrolling Mount Tam for the killer, he realized he would have to stalk his next victims in a different location or risk being caught. He next focused his attention on Marin County seashore and then further south to Santa Cruz County where he continued his brazen daytime attacks on unsuspecting hikers. This is where I'll pick up the story. I'll end this episode and the series by detailing how his bold actions led to his identification and finally brought him to justice. But first, a note before we begin. Every once in a while, I do an ultra-deep dive into a case and research it so thoroughly that I can share the case in detail with you without having to write out my usual script. So I'll be presenting this last part of the series in a more casual style while still providing the complete story. You may remember that I presented the Eileen Wernos case this way last year. If you're ready, let's begin Part 3 and the conclusion of The Trailside Killer Case. On Friday, November 28, 1980, three friends, Diane Marie O'Connell, Nancy Daigle, and Sharon Raymond, decided to take a hike along the Point Reyes National Seashore. The Point Reyes National Seashore is a 71,000-acre park preserve located on the Point Reyes Peninsula in Marin County, about 39 miles north of San Francisco. The small, unincorporated town of Point Reyes Station, home to about 300 residents, sits at the gateway of the Point Reyes Seashore. Bear Valley Trail is the most popular trail in the park. It encompasses about 4.5 miles of level ground to reach a well-known landmark called Arch Rock. At the end of this trail is Old Pine Trail, which leads into the forest. After about a one and a half mile uphill climb, it reaches Sky Trail. And here it slopes steeply down into the grasslands. There are narrow switchbacks along this trail, about 50 yards apart. Because of this feature of the trail, it makes it almost impossible to see anyone approaching. The three friends had decided to take this hike the day after Thanksgiving. Diane Marie O'Connell was a petite blonde from San Jose who had just graduated from Cordell University and was back in the area visiting friends in Oakland. The trio decided to start their hike a little after noon. At about 1.30 p.m., they passed a man who was later described as about 50 years old wearing glasses and an angry expression on his face. He was also wearing a green baseball cap and carrying, quote, something blue. He passed them from behind and headed quickly ahead of them down Sky Trail. The trio continued hiking, each going at their own pace with about 100 yards between them. Sharon was in the lead, Nancy was in the rear, and Diane was in the middle of the three friends. They were to meet up at the end at Bear Valley Trailhead. On this day, the trail was crowded since it was a holiday weekend. Other hikers passed them about every five minutes. Sharon would recall seeing a man standing just off the trail among some bushes. This was about 2.30 p.m. She described him as a white male with dark hair, average height and build. She also identified him as a young man, but would say that his back was mostly to her and she only saw him from the side. She thought that he was urinating into the bushes, which startled her, and she moved past him quickly. Toward the end of the trail, another hiker also passed Sharon going the other way. Her name was Shauna May. Shauna May was a legal secretary who lived in San Francisco and was hiking alone that day. She was about five foot nine inches tall. She was not a large woman, but she was tall and athletically built. Diane's friend Sharon, who was at the front of the trio hiking, reached the end of the trail first. She sat to wait for Diane and Nancy. Although Nancy was bringing up the rear, she reached the end and met Sharon first. They waited a few minutes, but Diane didn't show up, and Sharon asked Nancy if she had passed Diane. Nancy said she didn't. She said that Diane was ahead of her the whole way, and she didn't pass her at all. So they were a little confused at this point. So they went back down the trail to look for their friend, but they didn't find her anywhere. They finally decided they needed to report her missing to the park ranger at about 5 p.m. But as you can probably guess, the man that they had seen wearing the baseball cap and standing among the trees was David Carpenter. Carpenter had gone to the Point Reyes seashore that day and had passed the three women as they were hiking. He went off the trail and doubled back and got ahead of the group. He hid off the trail until Diane, who was in the middle, approached. He stepped out into the path and pointed a gun at her. He then motioned her into the bushes. But as he was doing this, a second hiker approached coming from the other way, this was Shauna May, the other woman that Sharon had passed earlier. Shauna came upon them as he was pointing the gun at Diane, And now he had to think quickly and figure out what was he going to do. His plan was to kidnap Diane, take her into the woods and rape her and probably kill her. But now, with two women to contend with, his plan was ruined. He then pointed the gun also at Shauna and threatened her as well, and took both women off of the trail. He got them off the trail and up into a secluded area, and forced both of them to take their clothes off. He then had them fold their clothes and lay them neatly on top of their backpacks. Just about 10 minutes later, a group of hikers in the area heard two gunshots, but they didn't investigate. Diane's friends had already reported her missing around 5 p.m., Not too long after that, a friend of Shauna's named Margaret Johnson also reported her missing when she didn't arrive at the appointed time. Searchers began combing the trails for the now two women that were missing, and the search continued until about 11 p.m. when it was too dark to see anymore, and the search was called off until the following day. The next day, early in the morning, a larger search began. This would include park rangers, the Coast Guard, the California Highway Patrol, the Marin County Sheriff's Office, and community volunteers. One of the volunteer searchers was searching an area off of one of the trails when he saw what he thought was a piece of white cloth. He squeezed himself through a thick tangle of brush and looked down to see what he thought looked like a tennis shoe. As he approached closer, he realized what he was looking at was two badly decomposed bodies. They were fully clothed and lying face down. It would be determined that they were the bodies of a man and a woman. These bodies would be identified as Cindy Moreland and Rick Stowers, who had been missing since October 11th. We'll move back in time to about six weeks earlier. October 11th, when this couple went missing, was two days before Ann Alderson was found murdered on Mount Tam. This was the woman, if you remember from the end of the last episode, who was sitting in the mountain theater meditating the last time she was seen. And her body would be found two days later, about a quarter mile off the trail, in a heavily overgrown area, and it would be determined that she had been shot in the head. So two days before that, on Saturday, October eleventh, 1980, Rick Stowers, age 19, and Cynthia Moreland, age 18, had gone missing after visiting the Point Reyes area. The couple was newly engaged. They had gotten engaged just three days before they went missing. Rick Stowers was in the Coast Guard and had just received orders to be stationed at Point Reyes Station. Cindy Moreland had just recently graduated high school. She had attended Rancho Cotati in Roanoke Park, California, and was a cheerleader. On that day, they traveled together to check out the town where Rick would be staying and where they would begin their life as a married couple. She knew the area a bit. She had hiked there before. The couple was seen in town up until about noon, but they didn't return home that evening. Some of their friends thought that maybe they had eloped. But the family didn't think so because Cindy was very excited about planning a wedding. When they reported the couple missing, the police didn't take the disappearance very seriously. They just figured that these are two adults who went off and, you know, maybe went on a trip or maybe eloped. And so it was recorded, but it wasn't seriously followed up and they weren't searched for. The family also contacted the Coast Guard, which, of course, Rick was a member of. But Coast Guard officials said they would have to wait 30 days before they began an investigation and instead they just marked him AWOL or absent without leave. Rick and Cindy's families didn't wait for this. They started their own investigation, but they found no sign of them. Now, six weeks later, while searchers are looking for two missing women, they find the bodies of Cindy and Rick. Now these murders would not right away be tied to the trailside killings because we're talking about a male and a female victim, where before all of the victims so far found on the trails had all been uh, women who were alone. So after making this discovery of two people dead on the trail, but not the two they were looking for, you have to imagine that the horror began to mount. What is happening in this area? The search continued. And later that afternoon, other searchers find the bodies of Diane O'Connell and Shauna May. They were found in a drainage gully just a half a mile away from the other bodies that were found. Both women were lying face down, side by side. One arm was draped over the other body. Both women were found nude. At the top of their heads were their clothes and knapsacks placed in neat stacks. Diane had been strangled with a thin wire, and she had also been shot in the head. Shauna had evidence of wire being placed around her left wrist. She had been shot twice in the back of the head and a third time through her right eye. So investigators, after studying the crime scene, came up with a theory of what happened that day. The killer took both of the women off the trail. They believe that his main objective was to abduct, rape, and kill Diane O'Connell. But when Shauna May walked into the scene, he took both women off the trail. Their theory was that he first tied up Shauna with a piano wire, raped Diane, and then strangled Diane, but didn't kill her. He didn't want to call attention by firing a weapon before he raped the second woman. Because remember, there were people in the area and shots were heard. He probably strangled Diane into unconsciousness, but she wasn't yet dead. He then raped Shauna, then placed them both or made them both lie face down. He shot each one in the head once, but then he returned to Shauna and shot her twice more. Witnesses heard two shots, and then two more shots about a minute apart. What they believe that Shauna was shot repeatedly out of anger, because her appearance ruined the plans he had to kidnap and rape Diane. So at this point, there finally is a break in the case of the trailside killer. Ballistics evidence would determine that the bullets that had killed Shauna and Diane were fired from the same weapon that killed Ann Alderson. This same gun later would also be linked to Cindy and Rick's murders, which was a surprise to them. So now they knew that it wasn't just women, although the majority of of the murder victims were women, but also a couple was murdered. Now, they tried to figure out why this would be. When we look back at the series of murders that we believe were all committed by David Carpenter, a.k.a. the Trailside Killer, we start with Etta Kane, but she was shot with a .44-caliber weapon. What we'll find out is all of the other shooting victims were shot with a 38 caliber weapon. This was the first murder attributed to him. All the other evidence pointed to it being the same killer on Mount Tam, but the weapon. So that was something that was a little bit of anomaly. We don't know about that weapon. Was that something that he had? Was that something that he stole? Because I talked about before that he would break into homes and steal things. It's possible. One thing that I did find in my research was that there was a 44 caliber weapon that had gone missing and reported stolen from a home on the same street where David Carpenter lived with his parents. So that's a possibility. That's where he got that gun and possibly ditched that gun after that one murder. Why? We don't know. The 38, from what I understand, is a smaller weapon. It's not quite as powerful. Maybe it had to do with it made too much noise. It was too hard to conceal. I don't know. But we do know that after that, he would use a 38 caliber weapon. But not right away, because the next murder that we believe was committed by the Trailside Killer was in October of 1979, Mary Frances Bennett, the jogger who was jogging near Land's End. Now, if you remember, she was stabbed to death. This very well could be because he switched to a knife rather than a gun because you don't have to worry about the sound, somebody hearing uh, a gunshot. He was committing all of these murders during the daytime and in places where there were other people not far off. So he may have wanted something that would not call as much attention to the murder as it was taking place. But here's a problem with this. So Mary Frances Bennett was stabbed. Then we have Barbara Schwartz, who was also stabbed. Remember, there was a witness who saw her being attacked with a knife by a man in the grove at Mount Tamalpais. So again, using the knife. But if you'll recall from part two, that in both cases, he ended up in the emergency room with deep cuts on his hand. And the second time, he actually had to answer to the police what had happened. How did he get this, or how was he stabbed, or what happened? So, number one, he realized that it's not as easy to murder somebody with a knife. You're very likely going to end up with cut hands. We know this if you you hear about stabbing deaths. That's one of the things that police will follow up and look for, is there somebody who has come into emergency room with cuts on their hands because it's very common that that happens? So to avoid that, now went back to find another gun. And we also you need to recall that at the same time he was trying to get his so-called girlfriend slash pen pal Molly Purnell to buy him a gun, and he was specifically wanted her to buy a thirty-eight. Okay, so that all fits together. And Alderson was the first one that we thought that he had killed with a gun. But now we know that two days before the same person with the same gun killed Rick Stowers and Cynthia Moreland. Now, investigators would try to figure out why this was so. They came up with a couple of different theories. They thought that maybe the killer had stalked Cynthia Moreland, thinking she was alone, and then Rick showed up, so he killed them. Or their second theory was that he simply killed the couple to test out the new weapon, the gun that he had just bought. And that's pretty telling to think about, but that was one theory that they had. And here's a question that I had that I wrote down as something that intrigued me and made me really kind of pause. Why did he return to the same area where he had killed the couple weeks before to stake out and kill another victim? The bodies of the two women were found just a quarter mile from where he had dumped the body of the couple six weeks earlier. Why would he go back to that same area? Did he want them to be found? Was he wanting to take credit for two more murders that people hadn't yet discovered? Or did he think his next victims wouldn't be found because Cindy and Rick's bodies had not yet been discovered? Maybe he thought that was a good hiding place so he could do that again. It's a very strange pattern. For a serial killer, Ted Bundy took several of his victims and dumped their bodies in the same part of one mountain. And I believe that they weren't found for quite a long time. So he knew that that was probably an area these bodies wouldn't be found. Now investigators knew that for sure they were officially looking for a serial killer. John Douglas was sent from Quantico, and John Douglas, of course, you know, is the FBI agent who specialized in serial murder. He was one of the founding members of the Behavioral Science Unit, which was the specialized branch of the FBI that began to research and study serial murder. But there would be over 300 suspects during the course of the investigation into the trailside murders but let me tell you a little bit about the killer's profile that they came up with after looking at all these murders and putting some patterns together. They believed that these were all carefully and deliberately planned attacks. They also saw that that the killer would lie in wait for vulnerable victims. He would always take them by force to a second location that was remote and would kill them by what they would call execution style. Not all of the victims were raped, but they were all killed in pretty much the same manner, either shot in the back of the head. Some had evidence that they had been made to do certain things before they were killed, like hold their clothes, kneel on their knees, get face down. They saw these as some ritualistic aspects of the crimes. They also theorized that the killer put all his victims through some type of discomfort or personal trauma before killing them. Did he taunt them? Did he tell them they were going to die? Did he make them beg for their lives? These are the kind of questions that they had looking at the crime scene evidence. Hikers and visitors to national parks and campgrounds in the area were now specifically warned about these murders. Permits for overnight camping were suspended. Attendance in many of these places dropped to about a third of the normal tourist crowd numbers. Park police and deputies were positioned at trailheads to stop hikers at Point Reyes. And here was the posted warning after the Point Reyes murders. It said, in all caps, because of the tragic discovery of four bodies in the park on November 29th, 1980, and this is underlined, please do not hike alone. Then it goes on. Everyone should hike slash camp with at least one other person, and they should stay together as much as possible. Women should be especially cautious, and under no circumstances, travel alone. A $25,000 reward was now offered by the Sheriff's Department. It was the largest ever offered in Marin County. An anonymous donor would add to that reward, bringing the total up to $37,000. On December 20, 1980, 17-year-old Anna Kelly Menjivar, called Kelly, was being picked up from her job by her mother Juanita. Kelly worked as a part-time teller at the Glen Park Continental Savings and Loan. Kelly, a beautiful young girl with brown eyes and long black hair, was a senior at Mercy High School. David Carpenter was a customer at the bank and often would wait to be helped by Kelly when he did his bank transactions. Kelly would always take a minute to speak to Carpenter, who she kind of felt was perhaps a little bit of a loner, somebody who was looking for friends. Carpenter, as you'll recall, had a very serious speech impediment. He had a hard time speaking due to a stutter. Kelly was a very kind girl, and perhaps because of this, she was extra nice to David Carpenter when he came into the bank. On this day, December 20th, 1980, Carpenter was in the bank when Kelly's mother came to pick her up from work. They walked outside together, and Carpenter started telling them about his job, that he worked at a warehouse that distributed gift items, that small trinkets. And he offered to give them some of these small trinkets to give as Christmas gifts. Kelly had told her mother that David Carpenter was very kind to her. She had also uh, mentioned at one point that Carpenter, quote, loved her like a daughter. So he had been coming in the bank for some time she felt she knew him but only as like a bank customer and acquaintance. She didn't know him well. When he offered for the mother and daughter to follow him to the warehouse and pick out some gifts, they agreed. He got in his car, Kelly's mother got in hers, and they followed him to the warehouse. It was empty at the time. There was no other employees there. The warehouse was closed, but he had a key and he let them in. He pointed to some boxes with some small items like some small dolls. One of the most common items that this uh, warehouse distributed was all kinds of different keychains. So he said, take whatever you want. And they thought, well, he's being very nice. And they took some of these things and thanked him and went off on their way. People would remember that week of Christmas, Kelly was giving some of these small gifts to her coworkers at the bank. But about a week later, on December 28th, Kelly would go missing. She was home the evening before. Right before she went to bed, she told her mother something. She said that she had a really big surprise for her. But the next morning, between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., her mother would discover that Kelly was missing from her bedroom. The evening before, Kelly's mother and her 14-year-old brother were both home. They heard nothing. Still in her room was her purse with all of her identification, money, and her uncashed paycheck. Her mother reported her missing, but the police decided to treat her as a runaway. Of course, her mother didn't believe that. She said if she ran away, why wouldn't she take her purse or her money or cash her check? As well, she had no big problems at home or school, her mother said. The manager at the bank where Kelly worked and had an account watched the account that no money had been withdrawn from her bank account either. Kelly had just vanished as the days turned into weeks. So now we're moving up to February 1981. At this point, uh, David Carpenter began working at a place called Econo Quick Print in Hayward. He had gone to a school to learn computer printing or printing with computerized uh, machines, and uh, then got a job working at this uh, printing company. People who worked with him, neighbors, coworkers, thought of him as a nice, normal guy. He would go around showing them pictures of his daughter, his granddaughter, and a baby niece, and this stood out to me because these are all females. These are all female relatives of him. He had a daughter, he had a granddaughter, and his brother's child was also a girl, and he was the proud uncle of this child. So you think about that and the kind of attacks and violence he was doing on women when he had women in his life that he supposedly loved and cared for. It's something that really makes you take pause. At this time, he was also still continuing to meet with his parole officer, and he met with him twice a month. He was working, he was still living with his parents, and he was reporting regularly to his parole officer. So nobody really saw anything out of the ordinary. It looked like here was a guy who did some things, really bad things in his past, and yet got out of prison and seemed to be on the straight and narrow. But several people, besides Molly Joe Purnell, knew that David Carpenter had a weapon. They knew that he had a 38 revolver, and he liked telling people about it. He even brandished it once aggressively after getting into a traffic accident and getting into an argument with the other driver. The man reported this to the police, and it was easy to do because David Carpenter had a like a station wagon type car at the time that he had put personalized license plates on. The letters were D-J, of course, for his initials, and CARP, the beginning of his last name. So D-J-C-A-R-P. A month before he started this new job, so this would be at the beginning of 1981, January of 1981, David Carpenter would meet a woman named Candy Townsend. The way he met her was that she was at the side of the road with her car broken down, He said that he noticed her because she happened to have two black eyes at the time. She had recently moved from Los Angeles to stay with a friend in Guerneville, which is north of San Francisco, about like in the Santa Rosa area. So about an hour past San Francisco in that area, kind of a more rural area there. He stopped and offered to give her a ride. At this point, Candy really had nowhere to go. Because, like I said, she was trying to get to this ple- friend's place in Guerneville, which was still about an hour or so away. So she accepted the ride. Not long after they got in the car, he propositions her for sex. I'm not sure exactly what the decision was here. Maybe she felt like that was the trade off in order to get a ride or to get some help. Or maybe she was just desperate because apparently she had been in an abusive relationship. She had these black eyes from somebody that she had been in a relationship with down in Los Angeles. So it was just not a good time for this um, young woman. She was also much younger than David Carpenter at the time. I believe she was in her 20s. He was like 50. So they end up having sex in the car. And right after that, he tells her that he wants to marry her. This is moving a little fast. But again, you got to remember, Candy does not have anywhere to go. He tells her, hey, you can come stay with me. I live in the city. I live with my elderly parents. you know, he probably comes across as a very non-threatening guy because of all of this, he's older, he lives with his parents, he's not like a a super suave, smooth guy. So, for whatever reason, she agrees to go with him to his uh, parents' house in um, San Francisco, which he has like an apartment kind of room that's kind of in the basement area of the house. So, she's staying with him there for a while. Now, during this time, and this is where Candy will come in um, to be important in the story is that she had in her car some boxes of clothing that she had brought from her with her from L.A. So there were some boxes of clothing in the basement room when she was staying there with David Carpenter. One of these items that he would borrow from her was given to her when she worked as a bartender in Montana. It was like a promotional-type jacket. It was a bright yellow goldish—it was a promotional one from a beer company— there was a word, it said Oly, O-L-Y. I believe that means Olympia beer, which was an old, <laughs> an old brand of beer. I only remember because my father used to drink it. She had left it in the basement of his house. He would wear it. He also often wore, according to Candy, an Oakland A's baseball cap. This cap happened to have a white A's logo on the front. It's basically just the letter A. And the back of the baseball cap was green mesh. He also, according to Candy, almost always carried a blue backpack. So, like I said, he moves pretty quickly. He'd met uh, Candy sometime in January. And on Valentine's Day, he bought her an engagement ring. But Candy really doesn't think she's going to marry this guy. And she also is starting to doubt that she'll stay with him much, much longer. She just wasn't as serious about him as he was about her, apparently. Okay, so we're going to move forward a couple months to March 28th. Candy's still living with David Carpenter. And they go shopping to buy shoes. She was looking for a pair of shoes. She bought a pair of running shoes or athletic shoes, I guess. At the same time, David Carpenter was with her and he saw a pair of shoes on sale. This seems kind of trivial, but it's not. It's actually going to be very important. So he bought a pair of Nike shoes, but it had a distinctive pattern on the tread of the shoe, on the sole of the shoe. It was kind of like a herringbone pattern. And the size of shoe that he wore was a nine and a half. Okay, so this was March 28th. March 29th, 1981, we're going to have our next attack. Now, this one is really going to be what blows everything wide open. Sunday, March 29th, 1981, 20 year old Ellen Hansen and her boyfriend, Steve Hartle, also at 20 years old, had um, decided to take a trip to Henry Cowell State Park in Santa Cruz County. I'll tell you a little bit about the park in a minute. Let me tell you a little bit about this couple. Ellen Marie Hansen was a sophomore at UC Davis. She had first attended UC Berkeley and then transferred to Davis. She was a sociology major, but she wanted to be a writer. Now, her father, Robert, was a professor of veterinary medicine at Davis. Davis is a very sought-after school for veterinary medicine. One thing, what we know about Ellen is that she was very adventurous. She had joined the Outward Bound program, which was a program that like college students would go out taking underprivileged kids or, you know, kids that didn't have the opportunities to do some of these hiking and different kinds of adventures and give them these experiences of being out in nature, which she loved. She had also climbed in the High Sierras. She even had experienced skydiving. Her boyfriend... Stephen Russell Hartle was a junior at UC Davis as well. His focus of study was agricultural resources with a minor in economics. They had both attended Davis High School, so they had been friends, but then began dating in the fall of 1980 when they were both at UC Davis. On the weekend of March 28th and 29th, they decided to plan a trip to Henry Cowell State Park to camp and to hike. This would be Steve's first camping trip, and so she wanted to take him to experience being out in nature in this beautiful park. Henry Cowell State Park, I know very well. It's not very far from me right here here in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I live in the San Jose um, area, which is the South Bay area of California, like South, South Bay we mean, like south of San Francisco Bay. I drive just a few miles up over the hill over the summit to the Santa Cruz area, Santa Cruz County, the Santa Cruz Mountains. So Henry Cowell State Park is this beautiful redwood park that's right in the heart of the Santa Cruz Mountains. It is uh, located just south of a a town called Felton and pretty close to uh, UC Santa Cruz. Now, the Henry Cowell State Park has more than uh, 15 miles of hiking trails, and some of these trails will lead to uh, small sandy beaches near the San Lorenzo River. When you're in the Henry Cowell State Park, uh, there are places where you can overlook a view of the Santa Cruz Mountains and towards Monterey Bay, there's lots of rivers, like I said, the huge redwoods, there's, and ridges and canyons that you can, um, you know, go hike at and, you know, discover these, these uh, natural areas. So that Saturday, the couple arrived at 11 a.m. They pitched their tent at their campsite. Then they um, got into the car and drove into the city of Santa Cruz to visit the Santa Cruz boardwalk. Now, that's one of the things that everybody does if you go to Santa Cruz is you need to go to the boardwalk, the world-famous Giant Dipper roller coaster, the Penny Arcade, and all these things. It's like a a carnival boardwalk. So they went there to the boardwalk, spent the day there, and returned to their campsite about 5 p.m. Spent the night in the campsite. They only had two days because uh, Steve had to be back to school, so it was like a very short little vacation. Sunday, they woke up around 9 a.m. and got back in their car and drove to Monterey. So Monterey is where they have the, you know, the pier, the wharf. It's also one of these places that, you know, tourists like to go, even though a lot of people go there. There's, it's not very big. You know, it wouldn't take you very long to go up and down the wharf, maybe grab a bite to eat. But it's a nice drive. You get to see the the coastline and all of that. So, you know, she was probably doing some sightseeing showing um, her boyfriend this area. So they returned to the campsite around 2 p.m. They were one of 90 campers that weekend. Um, They decided to take a nap until about 4 p.m. They were going to return home that evening. They decided to take one last walk in the Redwoods before packing up to return home. They started on the Pine Trail, which is kind of like the starting trail to get to the very popular Ridge Trail. From there, you can walk to an area called Cathedral Grove. And this is, again, one of these landmarks that everybody knows, you know, people take pictures of. you go. If you go anywhere in Santa Cruz, you'll see postcards with the Cathedral Grove, which what it is, it's a ring of redwoods growing out of one giant ancient redwood tree base. So it's in a circle. So that's why I call it Cathedral Grove. You can stand in the middle and you can look up and see these, you know, giant redwoods. It's just a be- really beautiful spot. As they were in Cathedral Grove, a man started walking towards them. He would be described as being out of breath. He was wearing a baseball cap and a gold jacket, and looked like he was reading a map. He also had a backpack on, a dark colored backpack, and was wearing uh, dark framed glasses. So where they were standing in the Cathedral Grove was about 500 yards from a Redwood observation deck. This is the highest point on Ridge Trail. It's about, it's about 700 feet up, and it overlooks the park, and you can also actually see the Santa Cruz Beach from there. So where they were standing, you would have to walk kind of up the trail and up some built-in steps to go up to this observation deck where you could see everything below you. As they saw this man pass, he was going up towards the observation deck. So they're still standing down below in the grove. Up on the deck at that time is a 45-year-old man with his 16-year-old son. They just happened to be standing on the deck just looking, you know, down at the, at the woods and the trails below. The man's name was Leland Fritz, and his son was named Ken. So they encountered this man with the bright yellow jacket on the deck. You can imagine who this is. You probably don't have to guess. They observed the man in this yellow jacket, Looking down below, and he looked to be scanning the trails like he was looking for something. The reason why this stood out to them is because most people go up onto observation deck and they look out into the bay, into you know, to Santa Cruz. Those are the views. But he was looking straight down into the trails that were below him, instead of at the views. From there, you could you could actually see a pretty large portion of the Ridge Trail from the observation deck. Another description of this man that Leland Fritz would give was that he was about 175 pounds, 50 to 60 years old, balding, and wearing glasses with dark frames. Leland Fritz would speak to this man, and he said that the man spoke without a stutter, but he noticed that he spoke very slowly and very carefully. So this is probably uh, David Carpenter's attempt to not be described as a person with a stutter. So he was being very careful with his words, and he said he was using very short sentences. Okay, so back down to Stephen and Ellen, they spent a few minutes in the grove, and then they retraced their steps heading back towards the observation deck. So up ahead of them, as they were coming up towards the observation deck, they saw the man in the gold jacket standing in the path ahead of them. At this point, it had been almost an hour since they had first seen him. The man was kind of standing in the middle of the trail. So they started walking towards him And the man said something like, oh, I see we've run into each other again or so we meet again or something like that. They kind of chuckled. But just as they started to get closer to him, he reached under his jacket and pulled out a gun. Then the man spoke to the couple, uh, to Steve and Ellen, and said, do what I say if you don't want to get hurt. And then he instructed them to put up their hands. Steve, I guess, stopped first and cautioned his girlfriend Ellen. He said, hey, he's got a gun, and told her to stop, because I think he saw it first. The man then instructs them to walk into the bushes, and he's got the gun pointed at them. Steve said, I was close enough to the man to see him very clearly. He said his bottom teeth were slightly yellow and crooked. He had flared nostrils, he had black hair, and he said he used very short sentences. Steve tries to give him his wallet to say, hey, dude, you know, don't hurt us here. I don't have a lot of money, but here, take it or something like that. But then the man tells him that he doesn't want to rob him. He says this to Steve. He says that he's going to rape his girlfriend. But at this point, Ellen is not going to go down without a fight. She becomes defiant and she is sure pretty panicked, but also assertively says, no, I won't let you. She tells her boyfriend, Steve, don't listen to him. This is her words that he would quote later. Don't listen to him, Steve, because he's going to shoot us anyway. And how many times do we say this? If somebody's trying to commit a crime against you when they're trying to take you from one location to another, that is a very bad sign. She starts approaching the gunman with her hand stretched towards him as if to grab the gun. I think it's, you know, one of those things, it's just an instinct, like, you know, to stop what's happening. But the gunman keeps telling them to go back down the trail. He's trying to direct them back down the trail because he's trying to direct them off the trail, and that's his normal pattern, right? We always know that he gets the victim off the trail, and that's where he attacks and kills them. Steve continues to try to reason with him, begging him, telling him to let them go, saying they won't report anything, just let us go. You know, I'm sure they're terrified at this point. At the same time, as the gunman is moving towards them, they're moving back. They're trying to put distance between themselves and the man with the gun. So Steve at this time is walking backwards and there's a little dip in the path on the side of the path and he starts to lose his balance because he's stumbling as he's going backwards and he kind of steps off into like a little, you know, ditch or something like that. As he starts to stumble, Ellen actually steps between him and the gun. And this is when two shots are fired. At that moment, Steve loses his balance. He actually gets hit uh, by a bullet in the neck and falls. Then the gun is fired twice at Ellen and once more at Steve. So the bullet hits him in the neck. It ends up hitting him in the main artery in his right arm. The bullet actually lodged in his chest about two inches from his heart. So people are on the observation deck. They hear these shots. They hear four shots in total, but there might've been a fifth shot. They're not sure if it was a fifth shot or an echo. Steve at this point loses consciousness and is face down. He believes it's just, you know, a few seconds later or so when he comes to and looks next to him and sees Ellen. She's also face down and bleeding and has been shot in the back. He is able to pull himself up enough to see that the man who shot them is fleeing, he sees the lettering on the back of his jacket. He's able to get up, and he starts running up the trail towards the observation deck trying to get help. Leland Fritz, the man who was there with his son on the observation deck, sees the bleeding man coming towards him, yelling, My girlfriend's been shot. As he's trying to help Steve, he tells his son to go run for help. But coming from like the side of the grove is the man in the gold jacket. Steve recognizes him as the man who shot him and starts yelling that that's the shooter, that's the shooter, and he's terrified because he thinks he's coming to finish him off. But the man runs past. He runs right past them. All of these witnesses that are there, including Leland Fritz, including other people that are there who start coming because they're hearing these shoutings. They're seeing this man is bleeding. So campers are coming. One camper ran to warn other campers in the area that there was a man with a gun in the park. Uh, A couple arrives and they try to help Steve, who is bleeding very profusely and is hysterical. And just by luck, the woman, who is part of the couple, is an emergency room nurse. So she starts trying to slow the bleeding and to calm Steve down. He's now in the the area where there's a a picnic grove. And this is where the the woman, who is a nurse, is tending to him. And now they see the shooter again headed towards the picnic grove where he's being taken care of. The first thing Steve does is, you know, freaking out, he yells to the woman who's helping him to run away. He tells her, The shooter's coming, run, run. But it's weird because all of a sudden, the shooter, he just starts walking very calmly, like past this picnic area. There's all this commotion going on. There's a guy bleeding. He's screaming that there's a, a gunman and he's coming. And he's trying to act nonchalant, which doesn't make any sense because anybody who was innocent would be like, Oh my God, what's happening? And he's just calmly walks past. Steve is then. Um, taken quickly to a vehicle of one of the campers in the area and rushed to the hospital. At the same time, Leland Fritz sees the man in the gold jacket who now has been pointed out as the shooter, and he's now running. He realizes now that this is the same man he saw earlier and spoke to on on the observation deck. He then runs to a payphone near the parking lot and calls the police. At the payphone, he's closer to the parking lot. He sees the man again getting into a small red car. The man peels out of this parking lot in this car. It's kind of like sandy gravel there. And he punches the the gas pedal and he loses traction. And he starts to kind of fishtail out of control. But then, you know, obviously he's panicked. This is what I'm trying to describe here. This guy's jumping in his car, trying to get away as fast as he can. Panics, he fishtails the car, trying to get out of the parking lot. So he's calling more attention to himself. So everybody you know, that saw this happen had descriptions of the man, of the car, of which way he was going, everything. The car, they said, was a foreign make car, a boxy, a four-door car, and they saw that it was headed towards the road that leads out of the park. Now, there was a road that leads out of the park, and then you go one way, and you get to the road that's going to take you to the Interstate Highway, Highway 17, and out of the area. If you go the other way, you actually end up in a small cul-de-sac where there's a residential area. Well, that's the way he goes. He goes the wrong way. There was a 12-year-old girl playing in the cul-de-sac in that area near the park, and she witnesses this red car driving into the cul-de-sac. Obviously, he made a wrong turn. This happens a lot. People will will make that little U-turn in that cul-de-sac to get back to the right road to get to the highway. So she watches this. I think he was in a panic, and he's trying to turn the car around. She sees him very closely. She could even see that he was perspiring. She identifies the car as a Fiat. There were at least four witnesses who gave descriptions of the man. He was about five ten, 160 pounds, wearing blue Levi's jeans, a yellow jacket, a green cap, white Nike shoes with a dark stripe. Um, he also had a blue nylon backpack and was driving a red foreign car either a Toyota or a Datsun. Ken Fritz would also describe the lettering that he saw on the back of the jacket said Montana and also described the shoes as Nike shoes. He said the man was clean shaven and had dark dark framed glasses. He had also been seen without the jacket and his hat was off later. I think he was trying to take off the things that would identify him because now he saw that the man was not dead and he was obviously, you know, could give his description. So that's where they were able to tell that he was balding because he had taken his hat and his jacket off. So composite uh, drawings are now made of the suspect. Ellen Hansen autopsy would show that the first bullet entered near the top of her right shoulder and exited below the shoulder and out of her back. Another bullet entered above her left ear and into her brain, and this uh, most likely would have happened as she turned away from the shooter. The bullet was retrieved, and it was a thirty-eight caliber um, bullet. The third bullet had entered the top of her skull, and the autopsy would also show that she had been shot from over two feet away. The third shot, they believed, was fired at her while she was unconscious, into the top of her head. Again, an execution-type wound, like the murders on the Marin trails. This, they thought, was a deliberate shot, like either angry or rage because he had been defied or he hadn't got away with what he what his goal was, which was to rape and murder this woman. So the other things that n- now would connect him to the Marin murders was the threat of rape because Steve, of course, heard him say that he wanted to rape her the use of a thirty-eight caliber weapon, um, of course, being on park trails. But you got to remember now, he's 100 miles away from the Marin County murders. And the description of the man in Santa Cruz didn't match one of the earlier descriptions on Mount Tam. And that would have been the description um, of the woman who witnessed Barbara Schwartz being stabbed. Her description was much different. It was a younger man, thin, black hair, a lot of hair, So there was a discrepancy there in that one description. The crime scene was, of course, swept for any evidence. And four unusual shoe tracks were found near Ellen Hansen's body. And they found these to have herringbone patterns. And right away, they suspected that this was from a running shoe. The next thing they did was to check out all the registered fiats in Santa Cruz County, Marin County, San Francisco County, San Mateo, and Alameda. Those were all checked to see if there was somebody, you know, with a record of sexual, you know, violence, that kind of criminal record. One of the things one of the detectives pulled out from the descriptions was the kind of clothing that the gunman was wearing. They said the guy was probably between 50 and 60 years old, but the clothing he was wearing were like flared Levi's jeans and this kind of like, you know, flashy jacket and thought, to me, it seems like an older man wearing a younger person's style of clothes. And what he took from this was that, you know, from his experience of being a detective, was that he noticed that a lot of times that ex-convicts would come out of prison after being incarcerated for several years, and they were kind of in a time warp where they were wearing styles from an earlier time that, you know, didn't quite fit. Their age, So he kind of wondered if this may be an ex-con and also because of the violent nature of the crime. Steve Hartle was operated on and then he was um, in stable condition in intensive care. On April 1st, a press conference was called that was led by Marin County and Santa Cruz County detectives, who said they now strongly believed that Marin's trailside killer had killed Ellen Hansen. They had been able to link evidence between the murders on Mount Tam, except for Etta Keynes, because she had been shot with a 44 caliber weapon, as well as Barbara Schwartz, who had been killed by stabbing. All the other murders had been linked to a 38 caliber weapon. And furthermore, the thirty-eight caliber weapon was the same weapon used in those murders, according to ballistics. The other outstanding feature was the woman who had given a description of Barbara Schwartz's murder because she had seen the man stabbing her in the grove. And they had questions because her description was so different from the rest of the descriptions of the man seen and suspected to be the trailside killer. So they actually brought her back to the scene um, of the crime and had her stand in the same place at the same time of day to see what she could see from the area that she claimed to have witnessed the man and given the description. The detective stood in for the killer um, and another for Barbara what she discovered is that she was not able to see some of the features that she had included in her description from that distance. They realized it was about 65 feet away. She had said that she saw he had a dark mustache, but they realized that with the shadows, the trees cast and things like that, it was very difficult to make out any features on his face, uh, which may have been shadows, including hair, facial hair, and the description as far as his age and weight and all of those things. The thing that we find out now from uh, David Carpenter's parole agent is that in April, he also began to change his appearance. He grew a beard, and he stopped wearing his glasses, instead switching them out for the first time with contact lenses. The parole officer also noted that he'd quit his job and also had been talking about problems he had between he and his fiancée that their relationship began to fall apart around March or April. And this, of course, would be Candy Townsend. In April, she actually told David Carpenter that she was going to leave and move out of the house. And he also admitted to drinking heavily since that time. And then there's a strange incident that happens at the Henry Cowell crime scene on April 4th, between the time of Ellen Hansen's murder on March 29th and the beginning of April, The place had been cordoned off. It was a crime scene. It was roped off. Investigators and police officers had gone to look for other things and take photographs and measurements and all kinds of things in between that time. But on April 4th, an officer who had returned repeatedly to the Henry Cowell crime scene found that in the cordoned off area, there were many more footprints of the same type like those left by the killer. Those had already been photographed and documented. Now he saw more footprints in that area. And along with the footprints, he found a large puddle of what appeared to be urine. Now they believed that the killer had returned, perhaps to taunt the investigators. Now, this was found on April 4th, which was during the week. One thing I didn't mention is that if you look back at the timeline of all the murders in all of the state parks, they always happened on a weekend, or if it was during a week, it was a holiday, like the Columbus Day holiday on a Monday. And one of the things that, of course, we know is that Carpenter was working during this time. He worked during the week. He had the weekends off, like many people. But on April 3rd, The day before this discovery was made at the crime scene, it was noted that Carpenter left work early that day. So there was an opportunity for him to travel from his place of work to Santa Cruz. Here's where things start being connected back to David Carpenter. Several people acquainted with David Carpenter had seen the composite drawing of the suspected trailside killer in the paper, in uh, news reports, and remarked, maybe just casually, that they thought the composite drawing looked a lot like him. One of the things that I discovered from reading lots of accounts about David Carpenter and people that knew him is he was a yapper. He talked all the time. He talked a lot. He would just engage people in these conversations, and some of them were a bit odd and also memorable. So here are some of the odd statements that Carpenter made to friends and acquaintances during that time, and these are quotes from these friends. Quote, if you commit a crime, you should have a gun. There's nothing like the power of a gun to get what you want. And then he said, murder is the ultimate crime, and it's the ultimate thing to get away with, the ultimate challenge. Of course, that would be a little bit memorable, don't you think? Here's another one of the statements he made to someone that he knew. Quote, some people have strong needs, needs that should be met. I don't have any feelings towards an individual's rights. Rape is the ultimate. The ultimate achievement is to do something like that. Now, that definitely would be memorable. I mean, who talks like that just casually? Carpenter is continuing to work at Econo Quick Print. He is now instructing students in using computer typesetting machines. Remember, his parole officer had said to his employer and his program um, directors that he should not be working with women now he's not only w- working with women, he's working with young women, and he's also instructing them. One of these students was named Heather Skaggs. I'll tell you a little bit about Heather. Heather Roxanne Skaggs was 20 years old. She had blonde, shoulder-length hair, and blue eyes. She was originally from Long Beach, California, and moved to San Jose in 1979 after she completed high school. Carpenter worked alongside her at this, in this program, and he became her instructor, He's much older than the 20-year-old Heather, of course. He noticed that Heather did not have a car. She would either have to wait for rides or try to get a bus. And he began offering her rides home, which is strange because she lives in San Jose and he lives in San Francisco and they actually work in Hayward, which is quite a distance. In April, he tells her that he has a friend in Santa Cruz that's selling a car he goes on to tell her that this car is practically new and the person who's selling it only needs $400 down and the total of the car will be $1,400. Now she says, okay, I could probably scrape together the $400, but I'm not sure how long it would take me to get the $1,400. He then says that if she gets the $400, he will loan her the rest of the money. Again, this is your instructor. I mean, he's going to give you a $1,000 loan in 1980. That's a lot of money. So. A little suspicious. Then he offers to take her to meet his friend and see this car. And Carpenter says that this friend happens to be in Santa Cruz. This is where the car is and he would need to to drive her there. She's hesitant to go alone with him. But then he sweetens the deal a little bit more. He then says that his friend also owns print shops in San Jose and Santa Cruz. And he may give her a job. Remember, she's going to this training program to learn to do computer printing type uh, jobs, and uh, now he's saying, oh, and he might also have a job for you. Okay, this is starting to get even more uh, convenient. Now, Heather, like I said, lives in San Jose. She lives in an apartment with two roommates. One is her boyfriend, a man named Dan Pingle, who is also, I believe, 20 years old, and this is interesting. She lives in the Glen Willow Apartments. You know, I see the address of this, 877 Willow Street, apartment 310. This is literally around the corner from where I live now, where my home is now. So I know this area very, very well. I actually looked up to see if this apartment building was still there. It is. It looks like it's pretty much the same configuration as it used to be, but it has been remodeled. So I would imagine that there's still that same apartment that she lived in is part of this building. Every time something like that happens, it makes things a little bit more real, you know, personally to know that she lived right in this area. So she says, okay, I'm willing to go see this car, but, and this is a very wise um, decision, she says she wants to bring her boyfriend with her to check it out. Carpenter then says, no, she cannot bring her boyfriend because his friend is quote, nervous about strangers. Now that should have been the end of the deal, right? Because that is just very suspicious. He wants you, a young woman, to go alone with him in his car to a place that, you know, you don't know anybody there, supposedly with this car and a job and all of these things. And it's just getting to be uh, way too suspicious, at least in my eyes. One of the things we know about Carpenter is he's extremely manipulative. And he always finds a way to figure out what people need or what they want in order to offer them that thing to put them off of. Their suspicions, or just get them to comply with what he wants. So what he knows about Heather is that she loves to collect and plant and grow ferns. I remember, like in the eighties, ferns were a big deal. You'd see them in all the restaurants and things. There was always ferns around, right? But she loves ferns. She loves to, to plant these things. He tells her, "Hey, and you know what? I'm thinking on the way up, we're going to Santa Cruz." There's like tons of these really cool different kinds of ferns and plants. You could pull some up and you can plant them when you get back. And, you know, that would be something. Wouldn't you like to do that? And, of course, she's like, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty cool. I'd love to do that. That's the thing that clinches it for her. She, she decides she's going to go. And she's going to agree to his stipulations that she goes alone with him. She talks to him on Friday, May 1st, when she agrees to meet him the next morning to go with him to see the car. Now he tells her... Don't tell anybody where you're going because he tells her it's going to be a surprise. You'll surprise them that you have this car now. You'll just drive up in your new car. It'll be a great surprise for your boyfriend and your family and your friends. The last thing he tells her before he drops her off and says, I'll meet you here across the street tomorrow morning is don't tell your boyfriend or anyone else about where you're going tomorrow, or who you're going with. And then he tells her, bring the $400 in cash. This is just way too much, Right. She tells him, okay, yeah, I won't, I won't say anything, but she does. She tells her boyfriend about the plan. He immediately says, don't do it. Don't go. This sounds very suspicious. Don't do it. She also calls her mother, who tells her in no uncertain terms, do not go. Says, no, Heather, this is not a good plan. Don't do it. And her mother believes that she talks her out of it. So I guess Heather kind of agreed, like, okay, okay, you know. So she thought she had talked her out of it. So she's like, great, good. She's not going. But then that night she tells her boyfriend and her roommate, if I don't call by 3 p.m., you should be worried. And if I'm not back by 7 p.m., you need to call the police. Okay. If you have to say that to somebody, don't do it, right? I mean, that should be your instinct to tell you don't do this. But one of the things, like I said, I learned in the research is that he's very manipulative, and he always comes across as this awkward kind of, you know, doughy guy that doesn't seem that dangerous. Of course, you would think that these students would know that this guy had a record, but apparently they didn't. I, I would assume there's some kind of privacy thing or something that they couldn't tell him. But again, if he had been registered as a sex offender, like he should have been, that might've been a moot point because it would have had to be reported to um, people that he worked with or, and people that lived in, you know, around his neighborhood, but that didn't happen. So he's basically flying under the radar still. She doesn't know that he's as dangerous as he is, but her boyfriend does insist that she write down David Carpenter's name, his address, and his phone number. So the next morning, her boyfriend looks out. He sees a large white or a beige car that picks her up at the corner store. And as I'm sure you've guessed, she does not return. So by that evening, when she doesn't return, Dan calls the phone number that she gave him. That's David Carpenter's home number. David Carpenter's mother answers and tells him that David is at the ballet. Now, this is later in the evening. Dan then calls the police and reports his girlfriend missing, tells them the whole scenario. But they tell him, well, you know, she's an adult, blah, blah, blah. If she doesn't return home by the next day, to call them back. And then they would, you know, put in a missing persons report. He's not going to wait for this. So Dan drives to San Francisco to the address that um, Heather had written down for him that's Carpenter's home. And he sits and waits in front of David Carpenter's house to confront him when he returns to say, hey, where's Heather? He just sits and he waits for him to come home. He sees him uh, drive up and get out of his car about 10 30 p.m. because he sees him walking up to the house so he knows that's him and he confronts him at the steps of his home and says where is my girlfriend? Where is Heather? You know you picked her up. She said you know you're taking her to see a car. She has not come home. What is going on? David Carpenter all sweetness and light says actually I didn't see her. We had the plan to do that and I was supposed to do it, but I overslept and I never did come to meet her. And then he produces a receipt to show that his car was in the shop that day, so he couldn't have driven to San Jose and Santa Cruz or anywhere else. This is something that David Carpenter will do. He'll always have some kind of evidence on him to conveniently explain times that things have happened that he's being questioned about and say that, no, it couldn't have been me. I wasn't there. He even has detailed timelines of the days when things happen. They'll say, oh, what happened, you know, three months ago on this day? And he will know from morning to evening what he did, where he went, what store he went, what he bought, you know, all of these things. Meanwhile, who does that? Who knows this, right? If somebody asked me, what did you do on Monday? I will have to like look up and hope that maybe I put something on my calendar I'd have to rack my brain. I'd probably forget, you know, 80% of what happened that day because we just don't pay attention to those things. But obviously he's paying very detailed attention to all of this because he needs to have an alibi, of course, makes him even more suspicious. So Pingle now is frustrated because he's not getting any answers and he leaves. So, but here's the thing. Heather Skaggs is somebody that David Carpenter knows, who works with him. She has mentioned him. She has told them that she has these plans to go see a car alone with him. He's identified as a person of interest immediately because this woman has disappeared. So the next day on Sunday, after the 24 hours has lapsed or whatever, Dan reports his girlfriend, Heather, missing with the San Jose police. They tell him that they will need to interview Carpenter because, of course, he gives them all that information. Um, Heather's mother, Mary Skaggs, arrives from Long Beach, where she lives. She immediately goes to the printing school to ask the director there of the school about David Carpenter. Wants to know more about him. Who is this guy who she was supposed to have been seen last with? That's when she learns about his record of sexual offenses. Because obviously now the director's like, oh my God, one of our students is missing, who supposedly was with David Carpenter. And of course he knows or she knows about Carpenter's past and his records. So now that is very relevant. Mary Skaggs is not at all happy about this investigation really not getting jump-started to find her daughter. So she goes to the San Jose Mercury News, the big local paper, and speaks with a reporter about all of this, about her daughter missing, about David Carpenter. You know, I'm not sure if they used his name, but saying she was supposed to have been seen last with somebody who had a record for violence against women or on a criminal record. This story runs on Monday, May 4th. So she had gone missing on Saturday, and uh, by Monday there was uh, public already scrutiny about this lack of investigation of this case. So now there's some public pressure, and the San Jose PD puts an investigator on the case. The investigator would be Sergeant Ken Womack, and he would partner up with another officer named Walt Robinson. They would start investigation into Heather Skaggs, which would kickstart the investigation into David Carpenter. So on Monday, May 4th, David Carpenter was contacted by his parole agent and said that he needed to meet with him. The next day, on Tuesday, Carpenter tells a friend that a student at his printing school is missing And he's afraid that cops will try to blame him since he's an ex-con, not because he is a felon and a known rapist and has a record of violence against women. So the parole officer has set up a meeting between Carpenter with the investigators from San Jose on that following Friday. That whole week leading up to this meeting, Sergeant Womack and Officer Robinson start looking into David Carpenter. The day before, on Thursday, they go to the printing school, but Carpenter's not there. He has started to be absent. The director at the printing school is asked what kind of car Carpenter drives, and they're told that he has a couple of different cars that he drives. One of them is parked outside in the parking lot of the school. They go out there, and this is when they see a dirty red car in the lot that's a Fiat. Now, Sergeant Womack remembers the car description of the red Fiat from the Santa Cruz Henry Cowell murder and shooting of Stephen Hurdle. He takes photos of the car. He then looks inside, and he sees a lot of crumbled up tissues on the floor on the passenger side. One of the things that he had written down that Heather's mother had told him when she was interviewed by him was that her daughter Heather had a habit of dropping tissues behind her wherever she went. He also knew from speaking to people in her neighborhood where she went missing that she had purchased a pack of tissues at the convenience store across the street when she was standing outside that morning. The convenience store clerk had seen Heather come early in the morning, buy a a drink and this pack of tissues, and stand outside. He didn't see when the car picked her up, but he knew that she was standing out there and that she had purchased those tissues. So Womack's starting to think there's a little bit too many coincidences here. So he looks more closely into the details of the investigation about the Henry Cowell murder. One of the things that wasn't told to the public but was in the police file was that witnesses said that the gunman's car had a tailpipe that was bent on the left side. Womack now looks at Carpenter's car and sees that the tailpipe is bent. Now that just kind of clinches it for him, like this very well could be the car of the suspect in the Henry Cowell State Park murder. So then he interviews Carpenter's federal parole officer and learns more about Carpenter's record of assaults on women. Womack then calls Santa Cruz and tells them what he's learned. Friday, May 8th, Carpenter shows up to meet with his parole officer and happens to be driving a different car that he borrowed from somebody else. Of course, he doesn't want to show up in the suspect vehicle. And here's some other things that is noted at that meeting. He has a beard. He's not wearing any glasses anymore. Sergeant Womack introduces himself and just presents himself as an officer from San Jose who's working on a missing persons case, talking to everybody who knew Heather, you know, that kind of thing. Womack will note that David Carpenter stutters quite a bit during this interview. When he's specifically told about Heather being missing, he makes this comment. Carpenter says, quote, I hope she hasn't been killed. I hope she hasn't been raped, which the officer said he thought was a very strange thing to say. Just that bluntly. He tells the officer that he planned to meet Heather that morning about a car, but he had partied the night before and never made it to meet her. He also says that he took his car in to get repaired that day. Remember, he always has the ready alibi, the same one that he told uh, Dan, her boyfriend, and shows them the receipt from the auto body shop. The receipt was for a Chevy station wagon, not for the red Fiat. He's then asked about the red Fiat and he plays dumb. He says, oh, well, the Fiat was also in the shop. It had been in the shop for a long time. He had never told the parole officer about the red car. So that was new information for his parole officer, that he even had a red car. Carpenter goes on to say that he was at the ballet that night. He then starts talking to the officer. Again, I I said this in um, part one, where he's always telling people personal details about his life, almost to elicit sympathy from them. He starts telling this officer about how his mother forced him to take ballet lessons when he was a child and he used to be bullied because of it. You know, I mean, that is totally extraneous information this police officer didn't need. But again, trying to paint himself as, you know, this pathetic person who probably could never do anything, you know, terrible, I guess. Then Officer Robinson says that he had also been made to take ballet as a child. And this was actually true. So this was something, you know, officers that are good at interviewing, they try to find something to connect with the suspect that they're trying to interview and try to get him to trust them. So maybe he tells them a little more than he had planned to. So he says he'd also been made to take ballet lessons and he was the only boy in his class. So they kind of connected over that now. And he said, Carpenter now becomes calm and he stops stuttering. But then Carpenter does something very odd. He begins doing ballet positions right there in the interview room, in fr- you know, right there in front of the cops, you know, as they're interviewing him, which, come on, <laughs> very odd. They're like, this guy is uh, a little strange. Then he says this. I mean, the guy cannot stop flapping his lips and making things worse for himself. He just does this. He says, I know you guys think I'm the number one suspect. Okay, suspect of what? She's missing they haven't yet said that she was kidnapped or she's dead. They don't have any, any evidence of that. But he's like, I'm the number one suspect. They took pictures of Carpenter and then was told that he could go. They're continuing this investigation. Now, both Marin County and Santa Cruz believe that this may be a good suspect for the murders that they have unsolved in their area. Surveillance now is started on David Carpenter. The departments that are involved in the surveillance are the San Jose Police Department and Marin County and Santa Cruz County Sheriff Departments. They all took part in planning to surveil Carpenter. And one of the things they said is, you know, the weekend is coming up, and this is when these murders happen. You know, we would hate for another murder to happen now that we have him in our sights as a suspect. So we need to watch him. The FBI is also contacted and surveillance begins on May 9th, 1981. And what they observe is that Carpenter seems to know that he's being followed because he starts driving very erratically. He's weaving in and out of lanes. San Francisco is a place that is really easy to lose somebody because there's a lot of one-way streets, narrow streets, And he knows the area very well. So he really tries to, you know, give them the slip. But there's more than one person following him. There's people that are staked out by his house. There's people that are staked out by his place of um, employment and watching him pretty much around the clock. There's a federal SWAT team van actually parked on his parents' block and a helicopter um, overhead that is used to watch him when he leaves. So they call in the helicopter to follow him. So they don't lose him. So an entire task force at this point would be organized to catch the trailside killer. And some of the other organizations that were part of this task force included ATF agents, the FBI, and police and deputies from San Francisco, Marin, Santa Cruz, and Daly City. So one of the things that they noticed during their surveillance is that Carpenter spent a lot of time at a department of a couple named Jeff and Karen Williams. Jeff's real name would be discovered to be Shane Mitchell Williams. He was the friend that I told you way back in part one who had befriended David Carpenter while they were um, incarcerated together. And at that time, Shane was serving six years for bank robbery. He had been released in 1980. But now he was wanted for a holdup of a bank in Arizona. It was actually a bank holdup that was done by both him and his wife, Karen, on March 12th, 1981. In April, he and his wife had come to San Francisco, and once they got there, they held up the Bank of America on Lombard Street. So he was continuing with his bank robbing ways. Then on May 8th, he held up a savings and loan on Polk Street, again in San Francisco. A large male bank teller chased after him. He got away with about $500 in cash, and the bank teller was then blocked by Karen, Shane Williams' wife who attacked the teller, kicking him and biting him and basically just, you know, jumping on him to allow Shane to escape. She, of course, was caught and arrested on suspicion of aiding a bank robbery suspect. A couple of days later, the FBI surveillance uh, van recorded Carpenter removing a suitcase and a dark backpack from a vehicle in front of his house. And if you remember, the dark blue backpack was described as something that the killer had in the Santa Cruz murder. One of the things that they really wanted to try to find was, of course, the murder weapon, and they were wondering if maybe it was in this backpack. Now, they had gotten information about the murder weapon because the ATF had contacted Molly Purnell. They were looking at known associates of David Carpenter to see if they had purchased a weapon, and they saw that she had purchased a weapon of 38, which, of course, they know is the murder weapon in several of these killings she had also reported it stolen this was something that carpenter had told her to do once she gave it to him just reported stolen but they leaned on her until they explained to her that she could be charged as an accomplice to murder if this weapon that she purchased ends up being the murder weapon that they're looking for so that she then admits that she did buy the gun for carpenter and it was the reason that she said she had bought it for him was because she owed him money and he told her that she could do that in exchange for the money that she was uh, supposed to pay him back. A tracker now is also placed on Carpenter's car, the Fiat. Two days after they talked to Molly Purnell, Carpenter picks up Shane and Karen Williams from their apartment building in San Francisco and takes them to his company's warehouse. This is something later on that will be information given by Shane Williams. Carpenter then got a bag out of a file cabinet in the office and then they all return to the Williams' apartment. There he pulls out a thirty-eight caliber black Rossi revolver from the blue backpack and gives it, along with a box of bullets, to Shane. This trip to the warehouse had been watched by F- FBI agents, so they were able to corroborate the time and the place and who was there. And then later when they were able to interview Shane, they got more of the details that there was actually a gun that was given to him on that day. The other thing they were able to do was to link the clothing that, was dis- that the killer was described wearing when they interviewed Candy Townsend, who now was no longer in a relationship with David Carpenter and had moved out. They interviewed her that week as well, and she describes the gold jacket that disappeared in either late March or early April when she was living with Carpenter. She said that he told her that somebody had stolen it from her car, what she thought was odd, because she knew that he was very, like, a fanatic about always locking up all the doors in his car and making sure everything was secure when he left his car. So she wasn't sure how somebody stole things from his car. The clothing she described were very similar to the ones that the witnesses saw the killer wearing in Henry Cowell State Park. So they figure at this point now that they have done all their investigation that they need, and they believe that they now can arrest him on suspicion of being the trailside killer. This arrest takes place on May 15th, 1981. It was one week of surveillance. They showed up at his residence with search warrants for both cars and his house. The FBI SWAT team was outside in the van. The San Francisco Police Department was there. The San Jose Police Department was also on hand. Daly City officers were there. So Sergeant Womack and his partner, Officer Robinson from San Jose, had really cracked open this case when they made the connections of the Heather Skaggs disappearance to David Carpenter and tied that to the description of things from the Henry Cowell State Park murder. But they since had been assigned to another part of the investigation, so they were not on hand for the arrest. But in Robert Graysmith's book, which is very detailed. I'll give you guys information of that in the show notes. If you want to really get into a lot of the even more detail, it's a very, very well done book. And he's the one that makes sure to mention the San Jose uh, Police Department officer, Sergeant Womack and Robinson, for being the ones who were key in getting this investigation against Carpenter rolling. They wait for Carpenter in front of his house. And as he leaves for work, they approach him. As soon as the officer and it's a Santa Cruz officer, approaches him, he begins stuttering very badly. Of course, this happens when he's under stress. He tends to be able to control it more when he's calm or when he's planned what's going to happen or what he's going to say, and he speaks more slowly during those times, and the speech impediment is not as um, evident. When the officer says they're you know, there for a search warrant and this is what they're looking for and gives them that information... Carpenter, again, the guy has verbal diarrhea. He is just always just shooting off his mouth and saying really dumb things. He says, quote, that sounds a lot like murder, a capital case. Why would you go there immediately? Like, just really dumb. He then refuses to speak further. He should have not said anything at all because that was a super dumb thing. Um, He's then handcuffed and put in the police vehicle as other officers begin the search of his house and his cars. When the arresting officer presents his badge as from Marin County, Carpenter now realizes this is not about Heather Skaggs because that's Santa Clara County, that's San Jose. I'm sure at this point he realizes this is about the trailside murders that he has been connected to. Carpenter now is taken to the San Francisco Hall of Justice, photographed, and blood and saliva samples are taken. He is then sent to Santa Cruz where he needs to be arraigned because the strongest case was the one with the witness, Steve Hurdle, and at that time was charged with the shooting of Steve and the murder of Ellen Hansen. He was put in a lineup and there was seven witnesses who one by one came to see if they could identify him at the, in this lineup. Steve Hertel, of course, Ken Fritz, the, the man who was there with his son, the 12-year-old witness who saw the man in the cul-de-sac in his car trying to run away or trying to drive away and three other people in the park. Steve Hurdles pointed out David Carpenter and said he was sure that he was the shooter. The 12-year-old also said that she was sure that that was the shooter, identifying David Carpenter, and one other person also identified Carpenter. Ken Fritz was not completely sure. The search warrants did uncover some evidence, including a crumpled bag in Carpenter's car that held a 38 caliber bullet. But they still needed to find the murder weapon. Karen and Shane Williams had fled. They had moved up north a little bit to Oakland, California. On May 18th, they held up a bank in Berkeley using Carpenter's gun. Shane would say that they held up the bank for money to leave town. They then fled to Los Angeles. So investigators were now aware that the couple was wanted on federal warrants for bank robbery, but when they went to their apartment to search, they were already gone. So they continued to build the case against Carpenter. One of the things is they start pulling up some other unsolved murders and disappearances, trying to see whether there could be any connection to David Carpenter. One of these was Carol Laughlin. She had been a cashier working at a Curry Village gift shop. Curry Village is in Yosemite National Park. She had vanished in September of 1979, and her remains were found months later at the base of a tunnel near Big Oak Flat Road, which was on the outskirts of Yosemite National Park. The reason they thought this might be a connection to Carpenter was the company that Carpenter had gone to work for had supplied gift items to the Curry Village gift shop for many years. I did a little bit more research on this, and I am not completely convinced because the dates, if I got them right, I tried to be careful on the dates because a lot of the sources that I used for research, the dates were very inconsistent. So I tried to make sure that I kept the timeline in order. And when I did that, my research, at least, shows that he did not start working for this company until after um, Carol Laughlin went missing. So I'm not completely convinced on that one, although it, it is an intriguing coincidence because of, you know, where she was taken from and where she was found being in a national park. So, yeah, I can understand why they would investigate that. Another one was Jennifer McDowell. She was last seen at a bus stop in Santa Cruz on May 27th, 1980, and her body was not discovered until October 19th, also in a um, rural area in Santa Cruz County. That's one of the ones that remains unsolved. but David Carpenter is also a suspect in uh, that case. And also Diane Steffi. She was found strangled on Thanksgiving Day 1979 on a Henry Cowell State Park trail. So they were looking at all of those cases. Now, if you remember Kelly Menjivar, the 17-year-old who went missing in late December, who had known David Carpenter, I mean, imagine how horrifying this is. They find out, that David Carpenter is a suspect in the trailside murders and their daughter is still missing. And her family at least makes this connection and calls the Daly city police to tell them about the connection to the suspected trailside killer, David Carpenter. And they told her that they would investigate. Remember they hadn't really investigated because they put it down as a runaway. Her family of course, never believed was correct and had continued to try and figure out what had happened to their daughter. Another big connection to David Carpenter would be made after the interview with Cindy Townsend, who had told the police about the running shoes he'd purchased just before the Santa Cruz murders took place. They then went and checked with the store where she said he had purchased them. The store clerk was able to give them the description and the type of shoe. These shoes had not been found during the search of Carpenter's home. They actually found a brand new pair of shoes that were found placed in plain sight, which they think was kind of like a decoy pair that he bought after he got rid of the other shoes. And they find that the treads of the shoes that he purchased, which are identified as Nike Electra's, matched with the plaster cast of the tracks made by Ellen Hansen's killer. Media attention now starts to grow after his arrest, and he is now dubbed the trailside killer in the newspapers. And it's reported now that he is suspected of the murder of Ellen Hansen and the attempted murder of Steve Hurdle in Santa Cruz, plus seven more murders in Marin County. Carpenter at this point is not speaking to police or the press. About two weeks after David Carpenter is arrested, Heather Skagg's body is finally found. On May 24th, her body is found in Big Basin State Park. This is also located in Santa Cruz County, but about 22 miles north of the city of Santa Cruz It's also a large state park, 18,000 acres, very much like the other crime scenes with lots of woods, trails. Her body was found by hikers near a logging operation in a semi-wilderness area. It was badly decomposed. The body had been placed behind a fallen log and covered over with brush in an attempt to hide it. But animals had dragged the body out of this um, area, and so it, it became visible to hikers when they were in that area a bullet wound would be found below the right eye that was still visible. And it would also be determined that there was evidence of rape. Like Ann Alderson, Heather Skaggs was also found in a heavily wooded area, 150 feet from a trail, and also one of her earrings was missing. And this is interesting because one of the things that is common with serial killers is to keep trophies, you know, called trophies, from their victims. So this could be things like driver's licenses, uh, jewelry, uh, clothing. BTK was famous for having done this, but there was also several others who would keep things with them from their victims. People that researched serial killers would say that this was a way to relive their crimes, to have something tangible to relive their crimes by taking something that belonged to the victim. It was also discovered that the bullet that had killed Heather Skaggs was from a 38 caliber weapon. And the bullet would be also be identified as the same weapon that had killed the other victims. Now there's a direct link between Carpenter and the trailside murder victim, from Heather Skaggs, who Car- Carpenter knew and was the last person that she was supposed to be with, to the murder weapon of the trailside killings. So Carpenter is now also charged with Heather's murder in Santa Cruz County. On June 1st, Shane Williams gets picked up and arrested in Los Angeles on the bank robbery and fugitive charges. A week after that, in Santa Cruz, David Carpenter pleads not guilty. And just in less than a week after Carpenter pled not guilty, on June 16th, 1981, the body of Kelly Menjivar was found. Her body was found in Castle Rock State Park near Big Basin, and she had been missing for over six months. Castle Rock State Park, just to give you an idea, is also in Santa Cruz County. It's about 50 miles south of Daly City, and this is where Kelly went missing from. She was found by rock climbers, and this is something that's kind of odd, or very odd. This rock climber found a human jawbone while he was in this area, uh, this rural area, and he took it home. Didn't tell the police, didn't report it, took it home. Uh, What? You know, I mean, that might be something that, you might want to let somebody know about. But when he told friends about it, they were like horrified. They said, you need to call the police and report this. I mean, dude, what has been going on around here? Or even if it, it has nothing to do with it, I mean, this could be the remains of somebody who's missing and who, you know, who went, got, who knows. So he calls the Santa Cruz uh, police and they come out and interview him and they say, take us to the area. So he does, he points out to exactly where he found it. And in the area, they found other skeletal remains that had been scattered by animals. The dental records from the jawbone would be matched to Kelly, so her family would finally have an answer of what happened to their daughter, which is uh, very, very sad. Harpenter was never charged with Kelly Menjivar's murder because they didn't have enough, but he is and still remains to this day the chief suspect in her murder. So the news about David Carpenter being the suspected trailside killer had gotten back to Shane Williams and he realized that this guy who is now a suspected in multiple murders had given him this weapon and he realized, I think this guy tried to set me up. He probably knew that Shane was going to use this gun in the commission of a bank robbery because that's what he does or in some other crime. And if he got caught with it, he then would be tied to these murders. So he kind of freaked out. He decided, I got to get rid of this thing. So he'd gotten rid of the gun. He had hidden it in an empty lot in San Francisco before he had uh, fled to Southern California. So now that he is in federal lockup, he starts thinking about this and says, you know, I need to tell somebody what I know. So he actually has somebody contact an FBI agent that he was familiar with. I mean, of course, he's probably familiar with a lot of FBI agents being a bank robber, but Apparently, this was one agent that he trusted, so he had someone contact him and say, tell him to come and see me, and I have some information for him. So the agent met with Williams on June 30th, and also Williams had his attorney on hand. Williams now tells the agent he can tell him where this gun was that David Carpenter gave him. But in exchange, he wants the charges against his wife, Karen, dropped for, you know, aiding him in the bank robbery or aiding a fugitive or whatever her charges were. So he tells them that he ditched the gun in an empty lot in San Francisco a few days after he received it from Carpenter. He had wrapped it in newspaper and placed it under some concrete rubble. He kind of described the empty lot. So investigators went out and they found the gun exactly as Shane Williams had described. Luckily, it was still there. Um, and intact, and it was a 38 caliber Rossi. The gun was then taken to the state crime lab and test fired, and ballistics proved that it was the murder weapon in the five murders in Marin and the two in Santa Cruz. So these would be the murders of Richard Stowers and Cindy Moreland, the young couple, Ann Alderson, Shauna May, and Diane O'Connell, and in Santa Cruz, Ellen Hansen and Heather Skaggs. They were going to put her in with the Santa Cruz murders because her body was found in Santa Cruz, and that was the last place she was supposed to be um, headed to. The gun now is directly tied to Carpenter, not only from Shane Williams, but also through Molly Purnell, who was the registered owner, who also testified that she had given it to David Carpenter, who Shane Williams said had given it to him. So it's all tied back. On July 31st, 1981, Carpenter was charged in Marin County with five additional charges of murder and also charges of rape against uh, Shauna May and Ann Alderson and the attempted rape of Diane O'Connell. And there would be special circumstances tied to these murders. Those were multiple murder, murder committed during commission of a rape, and lying in wait. So this could qualify Carpenter for the death penalty. The DA didn't think there was enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Eddie Kane, or the stabbing death of Barbara Schwartz. A change of venue was granted due to the publicity, and the trial was moved to Los Angeles, but it would be three years before this trial would begin. David Carpenter's first trial began on May twenty-fourth, 1984, His attorney asked for something kind of different. He asked for the guilt phase and the penalty phase of the trial to be heard by different juries. The judge granted this, but he decided that the two juries were going to be impaneled to serve at the same time. So this was unprecedented in California history. What this meant was there was 33 jurors total in the courtroom, um, and that's including the two juries of 12 plus alternates. So they had to have a pretty big courtroom. Good thing it was Los Angeles because Santa Cruz, there's no way. It would have been way too small. So it started with the Ellen Hansen and Steve Hartle case. And of course, this was their strongest case because Steve Hartle was a witness. And he did testify at trial. It was a little difficult for him to speak because his vocal cords had been injured when he was shot. His voice would sometimes go out when he was tired. But he did make an excellent witness. He was very detailed in his descriptions Of what happened that day, of the shooter, and everything that they needed to make their case in court. Molly Purnell also testified under immunity; she was granted immunity. She testified about the gun. Candy Townsend also testified uh, about the time she lived with Carpenter at his parents' house. She had actually lived with him for four months. She described the gold jacket that was worn by the suspect as hers, and that Carpenter had borrowed it, and then had said that it was stolen. And this was after Ellen Hansen's murder. During final arguments, something kind of shocking happened. Carpenter's defense attorney admitted that his client had killed Ellen Hansen and Heather Skaggs. He must have realized there was just way too much evidence of guilt, and at this point, he simply was trying to convince the jury not to sentence his client to death. He described Carpenter as, quote, out of control and a mess, and he said that he was not capable of weighing the consequences of his decision to kill. This was something that he would kind of have to extrapolate from, you know, witness statements and things because Carpenter refused to be interviewed by the psychiatrist that the prosecutor had hired. So for the prosecution's part, they told the jury that they should find for first degree murder because the killings were quote cold and calculated and that the victims were shot through the head execution style. Some of them after being raped. So after six weeks of testimony and three days of deliberation, the guilt jury found Carpenter guilty of the murder of Heather Skaggs um, and found for first degree with all three special circumstances. They also found him guilty of the attempted murder of Steve Hurdle, and they also found him guilty of the first degree murder of Ellen Hansen and attempted rape. The penalty phase uh, happened on August fifteenth, nineteen 1984, where he faced life without parole or death in San Quentin's gas chamber. The death penalty had been struck down in California um in 1972, but had been reinstated five years later. The verdict of death was reached by the jury. So he was sentenced to death. Ellen's mother, Marilyn, after Carpenter was sentenced, was interviewed, and she said that Ellen was a hero because she had resisted her attacker and made it possible for Steve to survive and to testify against Carpenter. And that was definitely a big part of the case that helped to put Carpenter away. So He's found guilty and sentenced to death, but he still now faces charges in Marin County. Prosecutors in that county charged him with two counts of rape, one count of attempted rape, and five more murder charges. These were for Cynthia Moreland, Richard Stowers, Diane O'Connell, and Shauna May in Point Reyes, and Ann Alderson on Mount Tam. At this point now, Carpenter is speaking. He says he can prove that he is not the trailside killer. His trial is set to begin on September 13th, 1985. A month before that, he gives a television interview to Bay Area Channel 2 10 O'Clock News. Carpenter is now 55 years old. He stutters very badly throughout the interview. He adamantly claims that he's not the trailside killer. He says that he has been made the suspect because of his past record, but um, tells the interview that he has undergone therapy in Vacaville when he was in prison and had his life together, so it couldn't be him. He said that he had been, quote, capable of rape in the past, but not now, and he would never murder anybody. So the interview starts asking him about the witnesses at the murder trial and and the evidence against him. In speaking about Steve Hurdle's eyewitness testimony, Carpenter says, quote, the most imperfect evidence is eyewitness testimony. He also says that Mary Skaggs, Heather's mother, lied. He calls Leland Fritz, the other witness, and Henry Cowell, um, quote, we all call him Lying Leland. Now, who we is, I don't know. Maybe he's talking about him and his lawyer. But then he says this, quote, if I can prove I didn't kill one person, then I can't have killed any of them. The Marin County trial starts. There's also going to be a change of venue for this trial to San Diego County. There was so much evidence in this trial that it had to be wheeled into a courtroom in a grocery cart, and this was according to Robert Graysmith, the author of the book I was telling you about, which is called The Sleeping Lady, The Trailside Murders Above the Golden Gate, who was in the courtroom at the time. People who testified again at the trial were Molly Purnell, plus 29 other witnesses. David Carpenter's defense said that rape charges should be dropped because there was no direct evidence, but the judge disagreed. Carpenter's attorney actually wanted him to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty because again there's just too much evidence but Carpenter um, got angry about that fired the attorney but then later reinstated him. Carpenter now says he wants to take the witness stand in his own defense. At this point you know (laughs) I don't know if there's that much to lose because it looks like things you know are going to go badly for him. The two trials just to throw this out here the two trials were estimated to cost the state of California between 3 and $5 million. And that's in like 1980-something dollars. So that's quite a bit of money. The second trial finally began on January 5th, 1988. There were 500 items of evidence and 63 witnesses for the prosecution. One of the witnesses, Tina Vance, told the court that Carpenter had showed her a suitcase he called a, quote, thief kit. In that thief kit, she had seen a gun, some wire, and strips of nylon or cloth. Why would a thief need nylon or cloth? You know, it sounds like somebody who's, you know, kidnapping or, you know, something worse. So this was significant because Diane O'Connell's injuries had included ligature marks on the neck that were said to be consistent with wire. A shoe print expert with the FBI was also called and also a Nike company rep to identify the shoe prints that were found at at some of the murder um, scenes. Carpenter's defense said that there was someone on the mountain that was a dead ringer for Carpenter, and they put on witnesses to testify about seeing another man that looked like Carpenter the day before the murders in the park. But when the prosecutor asked if the witness saw the man in the courtroom, this went badly because she said yes and pointed to Carpenter. There you go. After 14 weeks of evidence, Carpenter took the stand. He was there for three hours where he leafed through his personal calendar. He had dates marked, he had phone records, he had sales receipts, pulling out all these things to prove his whereabouts during the time of the murders. He gave alibis for each of the Marin County murders, but the only witnesses who could corroborate these alibis were his father, who was now deceased, and his elderly blind mother, who had since been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, so she was not able to testify, and others who were his so-called alibi witnesses were ex-cons he only knew by nicknames. And he also said he didn't know how to get in touch with them. He was like, you know, oh yeah, Big Joe, I was with Big Joe, I was with Tiny Tim, I don't know. He was, you know, making, <laughs> making up these uh, so-called ex-con friends of his, that he didn't know their legal names and didn't know where they lived, but these were his alibi witnesses. So, of course, that didn't get him very far. He also tried to disparage the reputation of two of the key witnesses, including Molly Joe Purnell, who he said was a marijuana dealer, when there was absolutely no evidence that that was true. The prosecutor showed the jury a driver's license picture where Carpenter was wearing glasses, because remember now he's not wearing glasses. They then showed glasses that looked identical that were found near Barbara Schwartz's body. When Carpenter was on the stand, the prosecutor asked him what happened to his glasses, and he just would not answer. He completely just remained silent. Carpenter also slipped up during his testimony when he told the story about when he was supposedly held up at gunpoint. Remember, he's always wanting to tell these stories about these things that happened to him, right? So he starts telling this story, and he describes the gun that he had been held up with as a 38. The prosecutor picked up on this and said, how did he know it was a 38? And he said, quote, I'm familiar with 38s. And the prosecutor goes, really? oh hell! And this is when he tried to backtrack, realizing he just painted himself in the corner. He said, I've seen them in movies and on TV. That didn't seem to go over very well with the jurors. I think they were probably rolling their eyes. He then added that he had friends who had shot 38s when he visited them at their ranch. But the damage was already done. <laughs> Lastly, this, and this was his big alibi claim. He tried to claim that there was a letter that he'd written and posted as part of his job, and it happened to post on the day of Ann Alderson's murder, which was October 13th, 1980. But when prosecutors subpoenaed the records from his company about that letter, they discovered that the date on the letter was the date the client company had sent the inquiry to the company, not the date that Carpenter had responded to it by letter. So that just blew that out of the water. And this, is what, this was the piece of evidence that he was going to claim that showed that he did not kill Ann Alderson and he had the receipts for it. So if he didn't kill Ann Alderson, then he couldn't have killed any of them because that was the 38, right? This was his whole defense. But now the prosecutor used his words in his TV interview against him. Remember that he'd said that, quote, if he'd killed one, meaning of the trailside victims, then he'd killed them all. Prosecutor ended his cross-examination of David Carpenter by saying, There's just one trailside killer, isn't there, Mr. Carpenter? And that's you. It was a four-month trial, and after seven hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict on May 10, 1988. They found David Carpenter guilty of five murders with the finding of special circumstances of two rapes and one attempted rape. His second trial ended seven years after his initial arrest. So now we come to the penalty phase. Witnesses were called to testify to his terrible childhood. A psychologist testified that Carpenter had committed the murders during a, quote, psychotic state triggered by resistance to his sexual advances, unquote. His children, Michael and Gabrielle, also testified in his behalf. A witness for the defense was a psychologist who said that Carpenter committed execution-style killings because of untreated psychosexual problems. So they were agreed that Carpenter was a person who was a sick person, but a person who knew what he was doing, who was very planned and methodical, and was guilty of first-degree murder. After eight and a half hours of deliberation on June 27, 1988, the verdict was for death. The judge handed down Carpenter's death sentence the following month sentencing him to be executed in San Quentin's gas chamber. And this is a quote of what the judge said at Carpenter's sentencing. Quote, Mr. Carpenter is without question a serial killer and a habitual criminal likely to commit violent acts against others. The court agrees with the prosecution's view that these crimes were committed with calculated viciousness and each one after careful deliberation. Two previous periods of incarceration from 1960 to 1969 and 1970-1979 to had no effect on his criminal activity. At the sentencing, Carpenter glared angrily at the judge. Everyone in the courtroom said they felt the anger and hatred that Carpenter was radiating and felt that the right decision had been made. Final updates to round out this mini series about the serial killer, David Carpenter, the trailside killer. In 1995, Carpenter's conviction in the Santa Cruz trial was overturned due to jury misconduct. But the California Supreme Court reinstated the conviction in 1999. In 2009, San Francisco police reopened the murder case of Mary Frances Bennett, the jogger who'd been stabbed to death at Land's End. A DNA sample was matched to David Carpenter, thus confirming his responsibility for one more vicious murder. Although he's never been charged with the murders of Eddie Kane or Barbara Schwartz, he remains a suspect, and their families believe that he was the person responsible for taking the lives of their loved ones. David Carpenter remains on death row at San Quentin Prison to this day. As of this writing, he is 91 years old. And... He continues to maintain his innocence. Wow, that will just about do it for this episode and conclude the miniseries, The Trailside Killer. That will also wrap up our fifth season of Once Upon a Crime. Can you believe Once Upon a Crime has been in existence for almost five years? We'll be celebrating our fifth birthday next month with a special bonus episode on June 7th to kick off season six. We may even have some special giveaways and prizes for our listeners. I hope you'll join us then for the celebration. I'd also like to give a special shout out to our newest VIP patrons, Rachel M. and Dave H. Thank you both so much for your support of Once Upon a Crime at our top tier level. To find out how to support the show and receive merchandise, bonus episodes, and more, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to get all the information and to join Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And original music and final sound mix is by Aaron Goldberg. Until next time, as always, be good to one another.